0: As we stand together, let's pray. Father, we thank you for this morning. We can gather together and hear from your living word, we gather around your table, we worship you. Lord, we pray that you would speak to us now through your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You can be seated. Well, good morning again and welcome. We continue this morning in our study of the book of Ephesians. So we'll be looking at the last half of chapter four, the verses that Summer read to us just a minute ago, verses 17 through 32. So I encourage you to open your Bibles there. We can look at it together. We've arrived now in the second half of the book, the second half of the book of Ephesians. We passed the midterm a few weeks ago. Remember that to pass the midterm of Ephesians, you just need to know these two words in Christ, that that status, that identity, that rock solid foundation Really, everything depends on it, and if we don't get that, then we don't get the rest of the book, and we don't get the rest of the Christian life. The good news of the gospel now, the good news of of that reality that we are in Christ, that good news, that gospel is about to get real. Uh, The the gospel is not just a a rock-solid foundation, which it is. The gospel is not just the proclamation of good news, which it is. The gospel has real implications, for our real lives, for real relationships, for real situations, for real churches. So that's what we're going to start considering uh, today in Ephesians chapter 4. So Paul's letter does take a turn now. If you've been tracking with us the first half of the book, there was all sorts of lofty language about being blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, about God's immeasurable love, the immeasurable riches of his grace, being fellow citizens with saints and members of the household of God. Well, now Paul starts talking about how we interact with each other, how we use our bodies, how we use our mouths. The gospel gets real. And as usual in Ephesians, this has implications not just for us as individuals, but also for us as a church, as the church. And as usual, Paul does a lot of painting contrasts. Old versus new, death versus life, utility versus future. But most importantly, as usual, Paul grounds everything on the saving work of Christ. So in reality, the whole book of Ephesians, and even more than that, the whole New Testament, and even more than that, the whole Bible is not about us. It's about what God has done. So there's a temptation to get to this section of Ephesians and think, well, the first three chapters talked about what God has done. Thank you, Lord. But now we're in chapter 4, and now Paul is pointing the finger and talking about what we need to do. And that would be a very unfortunate and depressing (laughs) way to read the book of Ephesians. In reality, we get to this section this morning, chapter 4, verses 17 through 32. We read what God, in Christ, by his Spirit, will enable in us. He himself is our peace, we've read, he himself is our strength, he himself is our unity, and he himself is our life, he is our new life. So our text this morning is not about what God expects us to do on our own. It's about what God will and does enable in us in Christ. There's a major difference there. It's not about what God expects from us on our own, but what God enables in us in Christ. And we have to understand that distinction, not just to understand the book of Ephesians, but to understand how the Christian life works. At no point in this book, and good news for us, at no point in the Christian life does God throw the keys to us and say, well, I got you in. I saved you. Now you're on your own. I did my best. You do the rest. God never says that to us. Our hope from start to start to finish and on into eternity is always and only Jesus Christ. So here's how we'll break this text down this morning. First, put off the old self. Verses 17 through 19 will help us see why. Second, put on the new self. Verses 20 through 24 are full of good news for us. And third, this is who you are. This is who you are. So the whole rest of the book explores that. Chapters 5 and 6, and we'll get into that in the coming weeks. We'll just scratch the surface today. So, first, put off your old self. Our text begins in verse 17 with a stark description of what life outside of Christ looks like. So, if life in Christ is a life in which God has turned the lights on for us, life outside of Christ is actually not life at all, it's death, and the lights are off. Look with me at verse 17. Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. So that word, let's just pause for a second. That word that we have translated in our English Bibles is futility. It's actually much worse than that. It actually means meaninglessness, hopelessness, uselessness, worthlessness, this futility is another way that Paul is describing what he described in Ephesians chapter two, the first half, and you were dead. So this, this kind of spiritual deadness is, is a worthlessness. Life outside of Christ is worthless. It's empty. Paul goes on, verses 18 and 19, but say the life outside of Christ, this kind of life of rebellion against God, emptiness is marked by an understanding that is darkened, by alienation from God, by ignorance, he says, hard-heartedness, by callousness, and perhaps most troubling of all, if you look at verse 19, is an abandonment to sin. Paul echoes here some of the ways he describes a life of unrighteousness, a life of sin in Romans 1. Look at verse 19 with me. They have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. This is what happens when the hearts of individuals and the hearts of a people become hardened to God. They lose the ability to exercise restraint. The, the Bible says they give themselves up. So over and over again in this letter and in others, Paul wants, to, wants us to understand just how hopeless and useless life outside of Christ is for many reasons. One is so that we would flee to the cross. If that's you this morning, you're you're thinking, I I think I'm living outside of Christ, well, run to Jesus. (laughs) But also, he's not doing this to shine some kind of spotlight of shame on that lifestyle or on the Gentiles in, in our text this morning. Or he's not shining a spotlight of shame on those people. He wants us to understand the contrast so that he and we might shine a spotlight of praise on Jesus. You don't realize just how nice it is not to have to wear a mask inside Trader Joe's anymore (laughs) until you've had to wear a mask inside Trader Joe's for 14 months. How nice it is to have someone into your home for a meal when you haven't been able to do that for 14 months or give someone a hug. The contrast here is not so that we focus on the depravity, but so we focus on the glory of Jesus, how great a savior we have. Life outside of Christ is not life at all. It's a death that leads to death. It's a futility that leads to more futility. It's an emptiness that becomes even more empty. It's a depravity that becomes even more depraved, but God, Ephesians 2, 4, but God, or in front of us this morning, look at verse 20. But that, <laughs> but that is not the way you learned Christ. Praise God. That is not the way you learned Christ. Put off your old self, but put on the new self. So we've seen the utter darkness of life outside of Christ, and now the light of the gospel shines. Verse 20, but that is not the way you learned Christ. Assuming that you have heard about him, that we're taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. We'll come back to that. Put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires. Verse 23, be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Put on the new self. When you become a Christian, when you are converted, when you are, as Jesus described in John chapter 3, when you're born again, Something immediate and irreversible happens. You are instantly in Christ. This happens by God's initiative. It's all an act of grace that when we place our trust in in Christ, immediately we are fully in Christ. And what happens is described for us in 2 Corinthians 5.17. We're a new creation. Listen to this. Therefore, you might know this, if anyone is in Christ, he is a what? New creation. Now listen how definitively salvation is described. Therefore, the old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. It happens in an instant. And it's done. (laughs) When you put your trust in Christ, you're a new creation. Galatians 2.20 puts it this way. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So in other words, when you and I step into Christ, our old self is crucified. It's, it's dead. And then in Christ, we're resurrected. And it's no longer we who live, but it's Christ living in us. To be in Christ is to be a new creation. It involves an immediate <laughs> Irreversible action of putting off the old self, putting on the new self, which is Jesus himself. Our identity changes and it stays changed. All by God's grace, all by his initiative, all grounded upon him. So the gospel is about to get real here, but it will only work if we understand how it works. The gospel has real implications for real relationships real people, real churches, real temptations, how we're really wired as fallen human beings, but first things first. And the first thing is the most important thing because it's the fundamental thing, that this is not about what God expects us to do on our own. This is about what God enables in us because it's no longer we who live, but it's Christ living in us. Put on the new self. Paul says, it happens immediately when you put your trust in Jesus Christ and you then are a new person and then for the rest of your life, it's our next point, you grow up into who you already are. We're a new creation, we put off the new self and God by his grace then enables us in Christ by the power of his spirit to grow up. Uh, this coming August, it'll be 15 years since Catherine and I stood right here and exchanged vows and exchanged rings, made promises in front of God and in front of many of you. And in an instant, Martin Menz declared us husband and wife. And in that moment, my identity changed. I was declared, I was decreed to be Catherine's husband. I had no idea what in the world I was doing. Any married men in the room, give me an amen to that. My journey as her husband for the last 15 years has been one revelation of my selfishness at a time to grow up into what I was decreed to be right here. By the help of the Holy Spirit, And Catherine, please, Lord, I'm growing up. 15 years later, four kids later, a lot less hair later. You don't need to say amen to that, Mike. I am growing up into what I was decreed to be 15 years ago. But I still, half the time, have no idea what I'm doing. Can any married women in the room give me an amen to that? I remember 12 years ago, almost, when my first daughter was born, Megan, she came a little early, unexpected, three and a half weeks early, so I was at work in the morning, Catherine was at work in the morning, and by dinnertime, I'm holding this little baby in my arms, and they're telling me I'm her father, and she's my daughter, and I remember when she was in the nursery, they had to observe her for a bit, because she wasn't breathing normally, uh, a nurse walked by and, and, uh, and how strange it felt for me as a new dad to say, that's my daughter. In an instant, I was her father. I had no idea what I was doing. And being a father is, along with your children, growing up. Same principle applies to our salvation. We're saved once, we're baptized once. We are decreed to be a new creation in Christ, but the Spirit helps us in Christ to grow up. And that's the language Paul used last week, if you remember, in Ephesians 4.15. Rather speaking the truth in love, we are to what? Grow up. (laughs) Sometimes the Bible is really practical. It's right there. Grow up. Turn to the person next to you and say, grow up. (laughs) It's right there. Into Christ. Into the head, into Christ. This is how the gospel gets real. We grow up into Christ. We put on Christ. And then by the power of Christ, we are enabled to reflect Christ. And that's where Paul goes next. The next part of this section, verses 17 through 32, and on into chapter five and on into chapter six. Keep tracking with us through this series, we'll see. This is your identity in Christ. Now grow up into it. But just like you couldn't save yourself, you had to be saved by Christ when you were dead in your sins, you can't grow yourself up. Jesus enables you. Jesus grows you up. Here's how one commentator put it. Christians are new people who must become in practice what God has already made them. So now Paul paints some contrasts for us. Old versus new. Life versus death. Utility versus future. This is what Christ will enable in you Slowly but surely, by his grace. So let's do a quick walk through here some of the practical issues Paul raises. He begins to apply the gospel. It's not just high and lofty, it's down on the ground. Real lives, real relationships, real struggles here. But remember, it's important. This is not a legalistic, moralistic list of do's and don'ts. Do this, don't do that. Do this, don't do this. This is just what it means to learn Christ. Remember earlier in verse 20 Learn Christ Well Jesus is alive He's not just an idea He's not a philosophy He's not just a set of rules And regulations He is a person and he is alive And he dwells in us by his spirit And so therefore we learn Christ So first Paul deals Interesting with truth telling Look with me at verse 25 Therefore having put away falsehood Put it off Let each one of you speak the truth. Put it on with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Put away falsehood, put on truth. Why right out of the gate does Paul decide to deal with truth-telling? Well, remember the statement from earlier in verse 21 that the truth is in Jesus. Okay, let's explore that then. If the truth is in Jesus, and we are in Jesus, and Jesus is truth, and we are in the truth, then the truth is in us. So therefore, Jesus has to enable truth. It's who he is, and it's who we are. A, A community and a person, but particularly the corporate application of this here is what Paul is getting at. The community in Christ cannot grow in Christ if falsehood is allowed to fester. Jesus enables truth because Jesus is truth. And then Paul goes on to have us look at another practical implication of the gospel. Verse 26 and 27 is one thought. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger, but give no opportunity to the devil. So in other words, you're going to get angry. Now, this is a recognition of our fallenness, not an endorsement of it, (laughs) not an encouragement of it, a recognition of our fallenness, but don't indulge in anger. Why? Well, because it gives an opportunity to the devil. That's one reason why. It rips at the fabric of a person, of a relationship, of an office, of a workplace. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. Now, sometimes you'll hear Christians even use this verse out of context. They'll just use verse 26 by itself. They'll say, it's okay to get angry, but just don't sin in your anger. The reason why that's taking a verse out of context is it ignores verse 31, which comes in a little bit. Let's look at verse 31. Skip ahead with me for a second. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Put away falsehood, put on truth. Put away anger, put on restraint. Now you may already start to feel like, okay, here's the list of do's and don'ts. This is what Christians always do. I come to church, they give me a bunch of rules, make me feel bad about myself. I can't even keep this up until I get to the car. That's not what Paul is doing here. He's not giving us the moralistic, legalistic list of do's and don'ts. That if you want to be a Christian, if you want to impress Jesus, you better do all these things or else. He's watching you. If that's not what Paul is doing, what is he doing? Well, what Paul is doing is is showing us a pattern of repentance in Christ. And I say that because of what comes next. Verse 28, Paul is showing us what Jesus-enabled repentance looks like, turning from something looks like. Notice how in verse 28, the thief, he talks about a thief no longer stealing and, and doing honest labor. The thief turns from stealing And turns to honest work. And the action which was once completely self-centered. And community harming. Is now productive and community blessing. Martin Luther describes sin as a life curved in upon itself. And what Paul is doing here in verse 28 is saying what Jesus does is he reverses the curve. You're not strong enough to do that. I'm not strong enough to do that. I can't reverse my sinful curve. Neither can you. No matter how hard you try, Jesus enables the thief to reverse his curve. And that's what Jesus does for us. Salvation happens once you're saved in Christ. Baptism happens once. We learned this last week in Ephesians 4. There's one Lord, one faith, one baptism. But the act of salvation and and the picture of baptism provides a pattern for us of thinking about in our heads how we view repentance. We put off the old, put on the new. Put off the old, put on the new. Again and again and again by God's grace. So that when those old habits appear and when those sinful patterns reappear, you don't immediately doubt your salvation. When I am selfish at home, or I am short with Catherine, or I get angry. I don't send out new wedding invitations and think, well, I have to have another wedding again. No, I need to grow up. That's what I need to do. And Jesus helps us to do that. So now on to verse 29. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up. This fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. There it is again. The the curve by the power of the Spirit is reversed so that once what came out of my mouth that was degrading and vulgar and corrupt that tore down the person who heard it, that was detrimental to the community I'm in, Jesus reverses that curve. And now my speech brings grace to a community. This is what Jesus enables in us by his spirit. Well, let's get real again. Verse 30, that when we sin, we grieve the heart of God grieve the Holy Spirit. Look with me at verse 30. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit. This is a stunning thought, that our sin actually grieves the heart of God. One commentator said it this way, that the God proclaimed in the book of Ephesians is not an unmoved mover. Our sin grieves the heart of God. But in Christ, there is hope for the sinner. Because the same Spirit who is grieved by our sin proclaims the gospel to us when we sin. So that when we speak deceitfully, the Spirit says, that's not who you are. When we erupt in rage or in anger, the Spirit proclaims the gospel to you. That's not who you are. When we speak in corrupting ways or act selfishly, The Spirit proclaims to us, that is not who you are. One New Testament commentator put it this way. He said, the old is being drowned in baptism, but the rascal can swim. And, And there's a whole chapter of Romans that deals with that dynamic. Romans 7 deals with this. It's a battle between our flesh and the Spirit, but you're not two people in Christ. Like a like a bad comic book character or a bad science fiction movie. You're not two people dwelling in one body. In Christ, the old has passed away. The new has come. You are a new creation. There is a battle going on for sure, but it's not a battle between two people. You are 100% a new creation in Christ. Therefore, we can be actually encouraged by the battle when that sin comes up again and we feel the conviction, when we can't beat something, the battle points to the fact that we're growing up. What's even more terrifying is when there isn't a battle. Because then what happens is what Paul described in verse 19. We've given up. We're encouraged in the battle because it means we're growing up in Christ. And this is why Paul can write in another letter of his, 2 Corinthians, 416, so we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, here's what Jesus does in us now. Our inner self is being renewed day by day. Our inner self is being renewed. We're, we're being grown up. The cow we're not doing that. I have I I can I cannot boast in that at all. I'm being grown up. By Jesus. So there is a battle for sure, but be encouraged in the battle that it's not who you are. It's not who you are. So notice now how this chapter ends, and we'll end here. Verse 32 Be kind to one another, tender hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. There's the gospel again. There it is. It's like a beautiful melody at the end of a song, as God in Christ forgave you. This chapter doesn't end this way. Here's how the chapter would end if Paul just threw the keys to us and said, do your best. It doesn't end like this. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, so that Christ might forgive you. It doesn't work like that. That's not the gospel. Hear it again. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, As God in Christ forgave you, he's done it. He's already forgiven us. God does not expect us to do anything on our own that he himself does not enable himself. And God does not expect anything from us that he has not fulfilled perfectly in our place. So we put off the old self, put on the new self. Praise God, that is who we are. He has raised us up in Christ. He's growing us up in Christ. And he will complete his work in us through Christ. So praise be to God that in Christ, you and I and this church will be enabled to do these things. So let's pray and ask for God's help. Praise you, Lord. Praise you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord, that you have redeemed us from our our deadness, that you have saved us from darkness, that you have shined your marvelous light upon us, that you have called us by name, and made us your own, that in you, Lord, the old is gone, it's been crucified, and the new has come, that we are new creations in Christ, always, forever and ever. So, Lord, we pray one of the most simple prayers we can possibly pray. Help. Help. Just say that with me. Help. Help us, Lord. Help me. Help us. Help this church. Your church, Lord, help us grow up into who we already are.